as we look around the world today, we can see a host of different manifestations of evil. As we look at our own city and our own country, um, even as Siobhan talked about in uh, several announcements ago, talking about our, the ministry we support in terms of uh, sex trafficking within our city, we see the proliferation of sexual abuse within our city as people are trafficked. Um, we can think of examples of domestic violence in our city. <clears throat> For those in our church who have been involved in foster care, uh, they know those horrors on an even more intimate level as we see the sort of evil that is done even to children. We can think of the epidemic of gun violence in our country. Maybe the, when you see the, ne the new headlines of a, another school shooting and your parents, there's that nervousness about, is this possibly going to happen to my own child? Is my child's school safe? We think of Russia, this dominant country that comes in and invades Ukraine. Or we start to then think about even new technologies like AI, and we've seen sort of what it looked like for big corporations to select corporations to get behind social media and not, know, not always having the best motives or um, sort of unregulated um, access to people's information and ability to take advantage of their eyeballs and how that's had a deteriorating effect on humanity. And now what about AI if that's in the hands of a select few? You could really start to build up your anxiety if you wanted to. Um, just looking around at all the different things in our world today in which we see manifestation of evil or the potential for evil. It's easy to feel anxious and uncertain due to the evil in this world. And we can see this anxiety, we can see this feeling of uncertainty we have, and oftentimes how we try to go about addressing it, how we try to go about uh, acquiring security for ourselves. So the whole insurance um, industry is built on trying to gain security for yourself in the midst of what could be calamities or sometimes evil. You can even get um, insurance now to, uh, that will give you uh, security if somehow you're hacked and someone steals all your stuff through hacking. I know like churches can get that and things like that. So there are ways that you can kind of protect yourself against uh, people with evil intent. Sometimes people buy security systems for their houses in order to protect them against home invasions or things like that. Oftentimes this is what our politicians campaign on, right? They identify some sort of evil or perceived evil and they run um, in order to sort of rally people around saying, I alone or I am the one who can address this evil and fix this evil. And then, of course, four years later, the evil still persists. This is sort of the instinct that many have where we think about wanting even like a strong America and wanting to have a strong military. What's the idea there? It's like, well, if we have a big enough military, maybe the bad actors in some of those other countries, they won't mess with us, right? And some of these instincts are not necessarily wrong, like to want to be safe and want to do what we can to take responsibility to mitigate against evil, of course. My point in addressing them is that we, we do, even if we don't always recognize it, have this sense of anxiety that we oftentimes feel about the evil in this world. 
sort of, we sort of, uh, it, ma it makes us sort of sense the fact that we're not in charge, that we're susceptible to evil. And we long for something to take charge. That's oftentimes, again, why politicians can take advantage of that, because we're looking for someone who can make the promise to handle the evil and meet the anxiety that we feel. In our passage today, um, we see Jesus who comes to us in a series now of, of these accounts that show the authority of Christ. We've seen in the immediate last section that Jesus has authority over the forces of nature as he calms the storm. In, in the passages that follow, we'll see that he has authority over uncleanness, he has authority over disease and even death itself. And so too here in our passage today, we see Jesus who has absolute authority over the forces of darkness. Jesus has absolute authority over the forces of darkness. He had authority, as we just saw, over the chaotic forces of nature, and now we see he has authority over even the chaotic forces of human nature. This is really part and parcel of what the whole book is about, the arrival of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus. And for the arrival of the king to, to show up, it is for the king to have authority. It is a king who has authority who then can exercise God's kingdom. And a kingdom that is restoring creation, which means it pushes back the forces of darkness. Jesus has absolute authority over evil. And what I plan to do then today is... We're just going to enter into the story as Matt read it for us. We're just, I want us to really just sit in the details and feel the weight of really what this passage is saying. Um, if you're a note taker and you like to have headings, we might break down the four sections of the passage this way. First, we get the description, the description of the man possessed. Second, we get the exorcism, the confrontation between Jesus and the possessed man, the exorcism. Third, we get aversion, a response of aversion from the crowd, and then, uh, or the city, that is. And then fourthly, we get a commission, the response of the man himself and what Jesus instructs him to, to do. So again, that's a description, exorcism, aversion, and commission. So let's begin with the description of the man. Um, we read in verses 1 and 2 how Jesus shows up on the shore. Again, this is the demon-possessed man who encounters Jesus, we get his description. In verse 1, it says that they, that is Jesus and his disciples, they came to the other side of the sea. So they've just experienced the calming of the storm, and now they finally arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That is to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Okay, so this is Gentile territory. The Gentiles would have um, been occupying this side of the Sea of Galilee at this time, and we're going to see that as clear uh, by the fact that um, eventually Jesus will um, have, the pig, have the demons go into a herd of pigs, and of course pigs would have been unclean, so it shows that this is Gentile territory that they are now entering into. And as soon, you can just picture it, like as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, as soon as they land, immediately, characteristic of Mark, right? Immediately, Jesus is confronted by this demon-possessed 
man. We, we, are, we are expecting conflict. We're expecting a power struggle. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen demons opposing Jesus, even Jesus as he is tempted by Satan. And so as soon as Jesus enters this new territory, the man is rushing at him. We expect this confrontation, this challenge, this opposition to Jesus entering this area that is clearly so dominated by satanic power. But we continue on, having seen that he comes out of the tomb and he's described as a man with an unclean spirit in verse 2. In verse 3 through uh, 5, we continue to read his description. And we've encountered other people throughout the Gospel of Mark who have been possessed by demons. But nowhere up until this point have we been given such rich and detailed description. And rich is probably not the best word. Grotesque is probably a better word. But we're giving such detailed description. Why? Because Mark wants us to feel the weight of this man's situation. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So first of all, we see that this is a man who lives among the tombs. Um, I live across from a cemetery. As you guys probably know, it's a very nice, clean cemetery. I used to grow, I used to grow up near a cemetery as well, so I don't know. That must be a feature of my life. But I, I grew up near a cemetery, and that one was a little bit more creepy. If you walked through that one, it was creepy. But this is not a normal thing, right? People don't live among tombs. They don't live among the dead. We sort of view those as, we sort of, like, it's sort of a hallmark of, of horror films, right, for a reason, because it's eerie. It's abnormal. It's, it's dark. So this man is possessed such that, oh yeah, where's a good habitable place for me? I'll go live among the corpses. And no one, notice this, was able to control or subdue him. Even chains, they would chain him. They would try to subdue him, you know, probably for their own protection, if he's a dangerous individual, but probably also for his own protection. But they're not able to. And so it's almost like they've given him up. They've just let him, let him be by himself. He's just sort of, there's nothing we can do. You're helpless. And they can't chain him up. It's sort of like Samson who breaks about the bonds apart. Samson who's empowered by God's spirit. Except here it's a man who's empowered by evil spirits. And he's a danger to himself and, and likely a danger to others. You just get this, this picture. It almost makes me think of like Gollum who's in The Lord of the Rings who's just like tor this tormented soul. You know, where there's this, this man who's like out in the mountains and he's, and he's just crying out at night and he's cutting himself. That he's so tormented that he, that he takes to actually harming himself. And maybe, we don't know why, maybe he's harming himself because he's so tormented that he just wants to just destroy himself. Maybe he's trying to somehow think, I, if I can only get these evil spirits out of me and he's cutting himself to try to release something, who knows? But you can just imagine. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a scary um, this is a, a, a scary person most likely, but it's also, and it's a very scary description, but it's also an incredibly pitiable description as well. Um, this man was someone's son. Maybe someone's brother. 
we, I mean, we don't know this man's story. Maybe he was a father at some point. Maybe he was a husband, and, 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 and things went sideways at some point. We just don't know. But this is someone that someone cared about. This is someone who, no matter how many attempts there were to try to help him, eventually he was cast aside. And not only is he, you can just picture this man. We know from the other Gospels that he walks around naked, but he's likely just full of scar tissue completely unkept, probably not bathing himself. And not only is he harming himself, and he's mentally tormented, but also he has no contact with society. Everyone stays clear of him. They want nothing to do with him. He's dangerous. Later we read in verse 9 that what's going on here, Jesus asks the name, and the demon with the demons within him say that their name, my name, is Legion, for we are many. And so even this idea of Legion, Legion would have been like a, would have been like a unit in an army. 6,000 or so um, soldiers that would make up a Legion. So it's not to say that there's exactly 6,000 demons, but the point is there is a horde of demons. So again, if you think of Lord of the Rings, I mentioned Gollum already, but if you think of Lord of the Rings, you get these, like, these scenes or any other war movie where you get these scenes of like a mass army approaching a city. Like I think of Return of the Kings when this horde of orcs and other evil creatures from Mordor are surrounding Minas Tirith. And it's just like no matter how far you look, there's just orcs upon orcs upon orcs. And that's the idea of, of, of using this language of legion, is it's a multitude uh, of dark, fallen angels exerting their tormenting influence over this man. And it's also the language of an army. Like, they are coming to wage war against him. And we see the, the sort of destructive force they have, not only in the man's description himself, but then when eventually when Jesus does expel them, and they go into the, the, the herd of 2,000 pigs, the pigs immediately uh, commit suicide. They like run into the water, whether they're all of a sudden startled by being possessed by demons or, or the demons are, are directing them to do that. But that sort of influence that they have, it's a destructive influence wherever they go. They want to bring harm to God's creation. They are opposed to God. They are opposed to the image of God in this man. They want to deteriorate the image of God as much as they possibly can in this man, and so they also then destroy that herd of pigs in verse 13. Again, why do we get such this description? We should really let ourselves feel the way. If you're reading this passage and you're trying to understand what this passage is doing, you should take note on how detailed the description is because we're meant to feel the weight. One, I think we're supposed to feel pity for this man. We're supposed to see how pitiable his situation is. So that when he is eventually restored, we see what joy that is when it talks about how people marvel, we can marvel with. But the other thing is like this situation, we're supposed to walk away feeling how dire this situation is. This man was helpless. It's not that he just hadn't seen the right doctor, he needed to you know, see the specialist and it's just a matter of time. Just wait until your appointment on Tuesday, we'll get this sorted out. Okay, the man was helpless. No one could help him. No one could tame him. He was uncontrollable. The demon's influence over him was overwhelming and seemingly no match for anyone. For anyone? Jesus has previously expelled demons, as we've seen. 
but this is a whole new level. This is a whole new confrontation. If you grew up playing video games, maybe Mario, Super Mario, something like that, eventually at the end of a level you get to the boss, right? You get to, you, you've, you've been fighting these, uh, these sort of villains along the way, these kind of puny villains, but eventually you get to the boss, and you gotta beat the boss to beat the level. This is like the boss demon. Jesus has fought demons before, but this is the Bowser of demons. What is going to happen? And not only do we get the description of this man that is so overwhelmingly um, sad and, and, and scary and daunting, but we also get this, this language that, that, that shows us this, this repetition of, of uncleanness in the passage, this emphasis on the uncleanness of the man's situation and his environment. He lives among tombs. He lives among corpses. And we know from the Old Testament to come in contact, contact with a dead body was to make oneself unclean. It was, those were unclean, and they spread uncleanness. The man is surrounded by unclean animals, pigs, and he's surrounded by those then who are employed in an inherently unclean occupation, herding pigs. He's also in Gentile territory, and Gentiles were unclean, so this is unclean territory. And then, of course, he has an unclean spirit. He has a spirit that defiles him, in other words. Now, what's, what's the meaning of all that? Why is that significant? I think what, what that adds to the story here is, one, it shows how, again, how dire his situation is. He's so entrenched in uncleanness not only he himself, but his entire situation, his entire environment. But it's also like Jesus walking into a hostile environment. Jesus is like, he's not walking onto home turf, so to say. It's like a spiritual wasteland that he's walking into. If you think about like a sports player, or if you played sports growing up, and you say you go to your rival, you're playing against your rival team, and the whole crowd is like booing against you when they announce, you know, they announce the starting lineup or something like that. This is not, Jesus does not have home field advantage, so to say, in other words, in this situation. This is unclean territory. Everything about this is set hostile to God and his order. And so that's the description of the man. But now we get to see what actually happens. By all human standards, a man's hopeless. We don't expect anything good to happen. In fact, if you're one of the disciples and you see this man running at Jesus, you probably assume he's going to attack Jesus. You probably think like, oh boy, like we just got done with that whole, that whole thing on the, on the sea. I've had enough already. Can we just take a break for a while? And all of a sudden this man, you know, maybe you've heard of this man too. He's on the other side of the sea. I don't know. Um, a man like this, I wonder if his reputation would have spread to the other side where people are like, oh yeah, there's that guy that, over on the garrisone side. Like you just got to stay clear of him. And all of a sudden you get to the other side and that man, you kind of like, I think that's that guy. He's running at you. And so we get the confrontation between Jesus and this demon-possessed man. In verse 6 and following, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, he sprints at Jesus, and notice, he falls down before him. This is a word that can also mean like worship. It's this idea of being prostrate. He falls down before Jesus. Someone that, that prior, no one could even subdue him with chains. Now he willingly puts himself before Jesus. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The, the, the idea here is like, why are you messing with me, is kind of the idea. I adjure you, I beg you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. 
And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and drowned in the sea. And so what we should notice here is the immense power of Jesus to subdue this man who is unsubduable, to subdue the unsubduable. You know, I think about, maybe you can think about your, one of your favorite action films, one of those superhero films like Spider-Man. Spider-Man's got all these awesome powers. He's got the spidey sense. He can shoot webs out of his, out of his hands and whatnot. But when he has to face Green Goblin at the end of the movie, it's this huge battle scene that takes far too long, in my opinion. Okay? I'm getting bored by the end of it, right? Super strong superhero, right, who's going to save the day. You know he's going to save the day. But you've got to go through this big power struggle before you can really feel that. Or I think of this scene where, where Harry Potter and Lord Voldemort meet in like a graveyard and I don't remember which film it's from or which book it's from, but I remember they have their wands at each other and their sort of electrical currents are meeting and, and it's this big power struggle for the longest time, right? Because it's two forces that are generally equal or generally on the same playing field, right? That's not what we have here. You have a man who, by everyone else's standards, was chaotic. No one wanted to mess with him. And yet Jesus shows up, and it's not even a contest. The demon-possessed man falls down before Jesus. He acknowledges Jesus as the son of the Most High God. Notice the language. He begs Jesus not to torment him. Most likely there, it's, we see this from the other accounts in the Gospels, that they're asking not to be put into the abyss so they have an understanding that their, their judgment is certain. They will eventually be uh, uh, condemned, but they're asking, don't prematurely put me into the abyss. And so they're acknowledging, the legion is acknowledging Jesus' authority over them. They're, they're not even saying, don't judge me. It's just like, please, just not yet. And they beg to be permitted, notice that, permitted to go into the pigs. And just imagine if you could have been there. So you're that disciple who shows up. Maybe you've heard things about this man, and you're like, this guy's running at him. And the next thing you know, right when he gets to Jesus, rather than tackling him or something like that, you know, spearing him from the side, he just falls down flat. Jesus, you just saw calm the storm of the sea, the great waves, the, the, the uncontrollable forces of nature, and now you see him calm the chaos within the soul of this man. Jesus has absolute authority over the forces of evil. That's what we see in this passage. That's what the story of this man demonstrates. And the defeat of demons, as Jesus tells us elsewhere, means that the kingdom of God is at hand. When the kingdom of God arrives, it means inherently a pushing back of the kingdom of darkness. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing Jesus arrive on the scene as his kingdom arrives, as, as he announced the kingdom of God is at hand at the beginning of the gospel. Now that kingdom is pushing back the forces of darkness. In Matthew 12, 
Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Again, as we saw from Mark 3, Jesus has bound Satan, that strong man, and is now plundering his goods, casting out demons, rescuing those who are in bondage. And this victory over the forces of darkness, we see him manifesting his authority over evil, and ultimately it is accomplished on the cross, the New Testament will tell us. Colossians 2, 14 through 15 tells us that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands, this sort of debt, this IOU that stood against us due to our sin. How did he set it aside? He nailed it to the cross. That when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it was our sin being nailed there with him. And when Jesus died paying the wage for sin, it was our sin that was paid for. He disarmed thereby, disarming the rulers and authority, this language that the New Testament uses for demonic angels, rulers and authorities, these, these powers in this world. He disarmed them by putting them to open shame, openly shaming them by triumphing over them in his cross. The cross, this emblem of shame, this thing that Roman citizens didn't even want to have on their, on their lips, Paul says that Jesus actually put them to shame by that. Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things. He became human so that through death, he takes on a body susceptible to death so that he might find death and he might then destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, the one who holds death over us as this, as this source of fear. And he delivers then all those who through fear of death were subject to that lifelong slavery. No longer are we enslaved to the fear of death that the devil holds over us, but through Jesus' death we are liberated from that fear. 1 Peter 3, 18 and following. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's the righteous one, suffering for sins. Therefore, they're not his own sins because he's righteous, but he's suffering on behalf of the unrighteous. He's suffering for their sins in order that he might bring us to God. He might make us right with God again, who would otherwise punish us for our sin. Being put to death in the flesh, he was made alive. He was resurrected in the spirit, in which he went, and notice this, Peter says he proclaimed victory over the spirits in prison, the demonic spirits. Jesus pays for our sins and then proclaims his victory over the spirits. He has gone into heaven. He's ascended at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, all these demonic forces having now been subjected to him. And finally, this will be realized in the final judgment. As, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, when he's talking about the judgment of the sheep and the goats, he talks about the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. Their fate is certain. They will be judged. It's a matter of time. And so what can Paul say in Romans 8? Paul can say, what can separate us from God's saving love to us in Christ? God's loving purpose to redeem us in Christ. What can separate us from that love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither, notice this, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, that is demonic forces, not even demonic forces, can, can sever what God has planned for his own to save them. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Anything else you want to mention, Paul? I think that's it, right? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so a passage like this teaches us, it, it can really correct against two errors. C.S. Lewis said um, that we can fall into the error of pretending that the devil doesn't exist. You know, some people will say it's just a metaphor, an inadequate metaphor for evil. So C.S. Lewis says we can fall into that error of sort of saying that the devil really doesn't exist, demons don't really exist. But the other error is that we can make so much of them, we can actually give more to them than they're, than they're due. And C.S. Lewis says that he speculates that the devil probably doesn't mind which error we fall into because both are bad. Undermining and not taking seriously the devil's influence in this world and over or underemphasizing the demonic, which functionally then neglects actually their influence and functionally neglects Christ's power over them. It functionally neglects and dismisses the authority that Christ exercises over them or overemphasizing them and actually then attributing, functionally attributing to them more power than they are actually due. So I think a passage like this pushes against both those errors. It tells us the demonic influence is real. And in a Western society, very much influenced by sort of empiricism and a scientific understanding of the world, where we think we can kind of figure everything out by natural processes and exploration, and we sort of remove the supernatural out of the scene, it's easy for us to sort of view the world as disenchanted. And we're not as attuned to the fact that there are dark forces in this world. That, that, that there are on, behind systemic evil in this world. When we look at Rev, the book of Revelation, we see systems of powerful corrupt governments or propaganda or these different machines, the beasts and the, and the second beast, that behind these are demonic influences. They're not merely human entities. But the devil is at work. And we can, we can undermine that by, by not a, taking account of a passage like this. But we can also give more credit than is due, undermining that Jesus actually has defeated them and has authority, and we don't need to live in fear. We don't need to be living in sort of this Christian form of superstition about the devil. And so I think a passage like this corrects against both those tendencies and is helpful for us. Jesus has absolute authority over dark forces. But I imagine if you're like me, we might struggle to always believe this truth. Why do we struggle to believe this truth? Well, first, I think one of the reasons we may struggle to believe in Jesus' authority over evil is that the evil in this world seems very present and very powerful. We see evil with our own eyes. It doesn't feel like it's very controlled. It doesn't feel like someone has authority over it. If we just look at it through our physical eyes and not the eyes of faith, we also don't see Jesus physically and immediately reigning in front of us. We don't immediately perceive with our very physical eyes his rule over the evil in this world. We need books like Revelation to sort of, what does Revelation mean? It's an unveiling, it's a disclosing of what's happening so we can really look behind the curtain, so to say. But we don't, we don't see it, and so we don't always, we don't always detect what Jesus' relationship to evil is. His, what is his authority over it? How is he 
uh, directing it and, 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 and mastering it. Much of evil in this world is yet to be subdued. Even if Jesus has authority over it, we still see that currently it's rearing its ugly head. It, it's contesting Jesus' rule. Just because Jesus is reigning doesn't mean that that reign at this point is uncontested. It will eventually be uncontested, but within God's time. But we're not there yet. And so that can cause us to wrestle in doubt. And I think for some of us, some of us may have personally experienced great evil. We've been on the receiving end directly of some pretty terrible stuff, which then can make it difficult to believe that Jesus is actually Lord over and has authority over that evil. It can be difficult to think that Jesus, what does it mean for Jesus to be authority, have authority over that if he's allowed that? And although that can be difficult, there's also something even more difficult about a Jesus who doesn't have authority, even when I've experienced something greatly evil. And a Jesus who, even though I don't understand why, and, and I don't always understand how, but a Jesus who has authority, even in the midst of experiencing great evil, there's a, there's a deep sense of relief that can come from that. And so what would it look like to live in the confidence of this reality? If we lived with a more, a more uh, immediate apprehension that Jesus is authoritative over the forces of darkness, I think first it would give us comfort. Christ has power over the most intense forms of evil in this world. Some of those that I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the sermon, domestic uh, abuse and, and, and the atrocities that children face in the foster care system or uh, massive governments coming in and attacking another like Russia with Ukraine, what have you. School shootings. Things that we, if we can, if we can work to, to oppose and we can work to reform, we should. But ultimately, we entrust that Christ is in control. And we can soothe our anxiety with that. We can, we can entrust that Christ is in control over the, those things. We can also live with confidence. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, the forces of hell will not ultimately win. That The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The church's mission will succeed. And so we don't need to live our lives sort of hedging our bets wondering what the final outcome will be. We know the end of the story, right? We, 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 hopefully we've read ahead. We know where things are going. We know that Jesus comes back. We know that Jesus wins. And so we get to live our life now knowing what the story conclusion is. We can live riskfully. We can, we can live sacrificially for the kingdom because we know that that kingdom will succeed and it's worth it. We can also live with hope. We live with, with knowing that Christ's power to save and restore extends even to those that we think are the most far gone. Think about this man. If, you, if there's ever a man that you could say there's someone, there's no one, there's someone that, 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 that no one can reach, they're totally beyond reach, they're hopeless, that was this man. It's sort of, a, in some ways, he's sort of like a living depiction of what Paul says, that we're dead in our sins. This man was, was entrenched in deep evil and oppression. And yet we see Christ's power to save. And some of you may be sitting here and you may, you may know that personally. Maybe it's, maybe it's you, you're aware of someone else. Maybe it's a, a son or a daughter who's not falling after Christ. Maybe it's a friend who you think is too far gone. And you need to be reminded that Christ can rescue and save them. Maybe you are aware of your own sin. And, and maybe you've been battling with sin for, for years. And you, think, you feel like, Kirk, you don't, you, don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've, I've been through. You don't know what I've tried you don't know the evil that's inside me. And it's true, I might not. 
or I may not have experienced what you experienced, but I don't have to know what you're experiencing to know Jesus and to know what he's capable of, to know that there's a Jesus here who is able to restore this man, and if he can restore this man, he can restore anyone. And so we can find deep assurance that he who began a good work in you, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he will complete it until the day of Christ. In the remainder of this passage, we get two responses now. We get two responses to Jesus that are meant to sort of be exemplary, contrasting responses. A positive response to Jesus and a negative response. And it's meant to prompt us to ask the question, what is our response to Jesus? First of all, we see the response of the city to Jesus. And their response is aversion to him. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and they told it to the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now you can imagine their experience. This is a man who is known by the city most likely. And all of a sudden they show up and he's clothed, he's composed, he's in his right mind. And their response, Mark says, is that they actually feared. They were afraid, verse 15. This is the same response of the disciples to Jesus when he calms the storm, right? Something so powerful is actually terrifying to us. They're like, what on earth has happened to this man? that he's actually restored. Now, we might, in some ways, I, I think when I first read this, you know, when I'm reading this as a kid or something, I'm like, that feels like a regrettable response. Like, wouldn't you want to be excited for this man? Isn't it kind of odd that he's, like, that you're afraid that he's restored? Wouldn't you be happy? But I can imagine them thinking, you know, this man was so ter- terrifying and so terribly powerful in a, in a dark way that if someone was to subdue him and to put him in order, then whatever, whatever put him in order must be even more terrifying. Must have even more power and, and, is, and is even scarier than this man. Or maybe they don't want their way of life disrupted. If, if, if this herd of 2,000 pigs was destroyed, what else is Jesus going to disrupt? Well, for whatever reason, they're afraid. They respond in fear. And this is meant to exemplify, give us another instance of this pattern of people across the book of Mark responding incorrectly to Jesus. As we just saw in the parables, as as the seed is cast, there is some seed where it's going to prove fruitful. That's the true disciple. But there's much seed that's going to land on the soil, and the soil is not receptive. It's soil that is thorny. It's soil that that is where the seed is stolen away by the birds. And here we get another example of soil that is not receptive to Jesus. It's a failure to grasp who Jesus is and respond in faith. But secondly, we get the response of the man himself, which is held up then as a positive example. The response of the formerly demon-possessed man. We read in verse 18, and he was getting into the and as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. 
we see that the man wants to be with Jesus. Of course he does. This, this man has restored him. This is, this is, is maybe as far as he's thinking, like, I, I got to be with this guy. Like, like I, I don't want to slip back into what, what, was, what was my previous condition. Whatever I can do to just be with this man, this man who I owe this great debt to. This language of be with is the same language that was used in chapter 3 when Jesus calls the disciples to be his apostles and to be with him. So it's this, it's this language of like someone who's going to follow Jesus, become a follower of Jesus. This man wants to be a follower of Jesus. And notice how he begs Jesus. He was begging him. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but throughout this passage, that, that word beg has showed up repeatedly. First of all, we have the demon who begs Jesus not to torment him and to send him out to the pigs. Then we have the crowd, the city, who begs Jesus to, to go away. And now we get positively this man who begs, whatever I can do to follow you, Jesus. I want to be with you. But we see what happens in verse 19. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, in some ways, this should strike us as a little bit surprising, because up until this point, Jesus had told people to be quiet, to not go and spread information about him when he performed a miracle. And in this case, Jesus actually tells him to go and tell people. I think maybe... maybe the reason for that might be because we're in Gentile territory. So there's, if Jesus is wanting to kind of keep things hush-hush about his messianic identity in Jewish territory, that may be because there's certain expectations about what the Messiah was, that he doesn't want to be misunderstood as, as if he's coming to overthrow Rome. Whereas in Gentile territory, there's maybe less likelihood of that misunderstanding occurring. That may be the case. We also don't entirely know why Jesus doesn't permit him to come with. Maybe it's because he's Gentile and Jesus' mission at this point is specifically focusing around the Jewish people, and that would be a bit too scandalous. I'm not, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, in Mark's gospel at least, this man becomes the first appointed missionary by Jesus, sent out as a Gentile, nonetheless to Gentiles. And so we can add this man's response to our question. What does it look like to live in the confidence of this reality? This man shows us another example. One, it's to live as one who's restored. That those who encounter King Jesus, the one who has authority over evil, the one who rescues us from our own evil, we live in the good of it. We are not just saved to something, but we're saved from something. And we, and we, and we live, as Paul says, don't live any longer as the Gentiles do. We put behind us that former manner of life. And there's that desire to follow with Jesus, to be with Jesus, to recognize him as our Savior, and to, and to want to follow him with the gratitude as one who has been saved. Jesus, what can I do for you? I want, I want, all my whole life is now to be oriented around you. And then as Jesus tells him, I love this line, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much mercy he has had on you. And that's our call too, right? As those who have been shown great mercy, each of our stories is different. If this man was getting up and, and sharing his testimony to be baptized, it would look one way. And your story might look a lot different, right? 
But each of our stories, no matter if it seems ordinary or remarkable, is a testimony to God's grace and his mercy. And that's really the call of evangelism, right? When we share the gospel with other people, we're just simply telling them about God's grace. And we can tell them from our own experience. I want to tell you what God's mercy looked like for me. That I, am an, I have experienced his mercy, and I want you to experience that mercy as well. And you can imagine the people, what do they do? What a testimony this man was. Where the town, they knew what his former manner of life was. You know, he's, he's living the rest of his life with these scars and probably some of the, the physical remains of that former existence. But he is now a living testimony to God's grace. And that's the call that each of us has as a believer. That, that we should be living testimonies of God's grace to those around us. As Peter says, giving reason for the hope that is within us. As we come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, as, a, as pictures of Jesus' uh, body and blood given for us in his death, his saving death, as we said, it is a picture of Jesus' death, a death which secures our rescue from the forces of darkness. There are many things that we can remember in the Lord's Supper, many aspects of the symbolism, but let that be our focus today. As we come off this passage, we think about the authority of Jesus. We think of Jesus' death as the very linchpin by which he conquers over evil. He absorbs our evil in his death, and in his resurrection, he embarks on new creation. And we await the coming day when he will recreate this world, and he will eliminate evil from shore to shore. As Hebrews 2 says again, since children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through death were subject to lifelong slavery. 